Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 349. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 349 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy Award-winning producer, engineer Craig Alvin. Craig has worked with Hanson, Little Big Town, Amy Grant, and a host of a million others. And he talks to us from his new home in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, where he's opening a new studio with his manager, Jason Spiewak. And we talk all things new studio as well as Muscle Shoals. And I'm really happy he's here. So stay tuned. Craig Alvin coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's ask ourselves, do we always need to get paid for our stuff? Okay, so recently we're doing some changes here at the house. We're moving my wife's office inside the house to a tough shed that we've had outside the house that the tough shed has been used for storage we don't have a garage so the tough shed has kind of been the de facto storage container a lot of stuff has been pulled out of it and a lot of stuff i realized oh my gosh i forgot about that i gotta get rid of that or i gotta sell that and when i'm doing this dolby atmos change over to my room that i've been talking about on previous episodes I'm pulling stuff out of the corners of cabinets that I'm realizing, oh, right, there's that crap. Now, what do I do with it? So my question to you is, do you always need to get paid for your stuff? I know that you've put money into your stuff. I know you've gotten some value out of it. Maybe you've made some money on it, hopefully. And it really begs the question, do you always need to get paid for it? And obviously that's up to you and the things that you might consider. What's the value of the piece of gear we're talking about? What is more important to you? The space that is going to be freed up by getting it out of your hair or the money that you're going to get? You know, maybe you really need that money right now. Maybe it's been, you know, uh, a tough road for, you know, getting gigs and you need some money. You need to pay some bills. You need to pay off. God, I hope you don't have to pay off any credit cards. But if you do, right, no judgment, just God, get those credit cards paid off. But do we always need to get paid? Sometimes selling stuff is a lot harder, I think, than than we realize. You know, sometimes it's, you know, you got to ship. Maybe you got to get insurance for it with, with the shipper, with UPS or FedEx. The shipping cost is expensive. And then if you take it to, say, like a UPS store, let's say you don't have a box, then you have to pay them to pack it up. You have to pay for your packing materials. All that shipping stuff can add up. And you know, I'm a big advocate for getting rid of your stuff if you're not using it. But this all keeps coming down to, do you need to get paid for it? How important is that to you? And you know, the dollar amount is is certainly a factor. Uh, You know, I'm sitting here staring at a pair of uh, Radio Shack Minimus 7s. Some people really like those. And uh, I've got this little half rack Tascam amp. And, you know, those two things make a a nice little combination, but, you know, I don't think I paid more than 20 bucks for the speakers and the amp was like 50 or 60 bucks used. So, you know, I could give that to somebody, make somebody very happy. Is it really worth it? I get my money back out of it. 
you know, and sometimes you can loan stuff out, drop stuff at other people's studios and say, hey, can you use this? You know, there's always that. You know, you could trade gear for time or, you know, maybe a couple favors or, you know, some people will do permanent loans where, you know, they'll place a piece of gear with you for a period of time. It, you take responsibility for it, you insure it, etc. You could always do that with your gear. So, like, I'm in a quandary right now. I've got a couple drum sets in the living room after emptying that shed out so we could turn that shed into my wife's office. And, uh, you know, the heat is on, man. I'm not really playing drums anymore. I don't really have the storage space for the drums. So what do you do with two drum sets? You know, one of them's newer. One of them's, you know, like uh, from 69. So that's a couple, you know, at least one of those drum sets. And I think you know which one I'm talking about is a more valuable drum set than the than the other. So giving it away is, that's that's something to think about. You know, that's, a, that's potentially about 1,800 bucks right there. And if you didn't know which drum set I'm talking about, I'm talking about the 69, 69 Ludwigs is what they are. So I don't know. I don't have an answer to this, but everybody's situation is going to be different. Everybody's uh, financial situation is certainly going to, going to vary. And your, your need for that money versus the need for the space versus a lot of other factors uh, are going to come into play. But look, at the end of the day, yes, we want to make money, but it's not always that important to get your money back. Sometimes it's more important to do something for somebody by giving them a great piece of gear and just saying, hey, this is a gift. There's there's no strings attached. Just take it, enjoy it, put it to use. Uh, maybe it'll help you make some money and, and be a good tool for you. There's no harm in that. There's no shame in that. So I guess from my opinion, I think that we don't always have to make our money back on this stuff. I think it's more important to have the mental uh, space to just know that, okay, that's out of my hair. I don't have to worry about that because let's face it, you know, if you got a shed full of stuff that you forget about and then it catches fire or floods or lightning strikes, I don't know, and it destroys it, then you're going to be like, oh man, all that stuff, bummer. And then you're going to be compelled to you know, write the insurance company and say, hey, I lost, <laughs> lost my Radio Shack Minimus 7s. You owe me some money, right? They'll have a laugh over, over you at the office, I'm sure, at the insurance office over that one. Anyhow, stuff to think about. Do we always need to get paid for our stuff? Once again, up to you. And uh, just make the decision that makes you happy at the end of the day. So that's my rant. Thanks for listening. That's it. Let's get to it. Craig Alvin here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Craig, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. I want to dive right in to the journey. So let's actually start with today and we'll go back in time a little bit. Where are you at today? And tell me about what it is you're doing in this day and age. <laughs> nice. Well, uh, right now I'm sitting in the control room at Cypress Moon Studios in Muscle Shoals. It's a classic studio that has been here since, I believe, the 70s. A lot of great records have been done in here with Bob Dylan and Bob Seger and a lot of other folks. But anyway, I'm, I'm using this room right now until my new studio gets opened up. I have a studio that I'm working on with my manager and business partner, Jason Spiewak. It's called Noble Steed Studios, and we're going to be here in the Shoals. Excellent. 
Yeah. Let's hold off on that for a bit because I want to really ask a bunch of questions about that because I know that that's going <laughs> to yeah. be an eventful thing for you and Jason. And I have many questions about it. So let's roll back to the beginning. Where did you grow up and what role did music play in your world? I was born and raised in Vancouver, Washington, which is at the very southern end of Washington state. It's actually a suburb of Portland, Oregon. So I grew up about 10, 15 minutes away from downtown Portland, mm. but on the north side of the Columbia River. It's a little bit of a different world in Washington state than it is in Portland, but we were so close. I just tell people that I'm from Portland. Everybody thinks I'm from Canada when I say Vancouver anyway, so I have to avoid that confusion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, my dad is a gospel singer. The year I was born, they started a gospel quartet that continued on for many, many years, over 40 years. Hmm. So they did that and toured around and made a lot of records. So I was exposed to that world. A lot of the people that were in his band were also session musicians. And so I was I was familiar with those people because we were always going places together for shows. So yeah, I, I did that, sang in you know, church and in school. I really didn't start playing until I got into college. I became a music theory major when I attended Mount Hood Community College out in Gresham, Oregon, which was actually at the time was a really great music school. They've shut the music program down since then, but at the time they had a fairly influential jazz festival and a, and a well-known jazz program. But I, I was just a music theory guy there for a while. After that, I went on to Multnomah Bible College where mm. I studied biblical interpretation and was getting extremely bored with it. And one day I walked out of New Testament history class and this guy named John walks up to me and said, hey, do you know they have a Neve here? And I was, didn't know what that was. What? I said, what's a Neve? He said, it's a board. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. So they have a board here. He's like, no, like the Neve is like the best board. So he took me over and showed me what I thought was always just like a broom closet or something. He opened the door and it was a full recording studio that was all set up and had never been used. So I went and got permission to maybe start going in there and working on recording with friends. And they gave me permission. And I worked with kind of a little folk band named Five O'Clock People. And we did a, a silly little demo on a weekend and they got a record deal out of it. And that led wow. to Joe Ciccarelli producing the record. And I got to be his assistant engineer. So it's really that random. That is so, that is crazy <laughs> random. Had you had any recording experience prior to that? Only four track stuff with friends on, you know, four track cassette. Uh-huh. Nothing serious. What would you say at that time period was, would you consider your primary instrument? I was a bass player. Bass player. Huh? Yeah. Interesting. So you do this random record, Joe Ciccarelli mm -hmm. produces. Yeah. I mean, it took a little while. Yeah. We did that little demo and a lot of people really liked it. They sold thousands of copies just around the local area. And just kind of one of those, one thing led to another over the next year or so. I got out of school and I bought, I remember I bought a 3M M79 24 track that used to be at Motown in LA. And I bought a Neotech console. I set those things up in a spare bedroom in my house. 
that was my first recording studio. And then later on, I uh, started a partnership with a guy who had a recording studio in Portland he'd built, but wasn't really using it. So I moved all my stuff in there and started recording out of there. And that's actually where we did the record for Five O'Clock People that Joe produced. What was your experience with Joe on making that record? What, what were the takeaways about what you learned from him about how to make a record on a high level? Well, I think man, there's two things in particular that I really took away from that experience. The first was when we were setting up drums on the very first day, he was taking the hi-hat track because we only had a 24 track. We were working analog. And he was taking the hi-hat track and the tom tracks, and he was blending them to the overhead tracks. And I said, don't we want to split those out so that at mix we can change them? And he looked at me and said, no, we're mixing. Today, we're mixing. We're always mixing. And that like really changed things in my brain to realize that, no, you don't put off decisions for later. If you're good and you're a professional, you can make those decisions now and just do a good job and you'll be better off. Also, we needed the tracks because there was a lot of people in the band and 24 tracks. If we were to take it all up with drums, we wouldn't have any room for all the vocals and other instruments. So that was one big takeaway. The other one was really just to always be present. Mm -hmm. I remember he got, well, to be honest, he got angry with me because he turned around and saw that I was looking at a magazine I was sitting on the couch behind him. He turned around and saw that I was looking at a magazine. And uh, the truth is I had, I really was only moving the magazine because it was in my way when I sat down, but I hesitated for a second too long as I looked at the cover of the magazine. And he gave me a pretty stern lecture on how I needed to be always paying attention and always present. And I, I've tried to carry that with me. And remember that, you know, it's important to always to be there for those moments. Even if I'm not the one running the tape machine or whatever, I need to be listening. It's still my job to be listening. Hmm. Good advice. Because it's, as I'm sure you would agree, it's very difficult to be present for a lot of people who are on the periphery these days with our cell phones, et cetera, and other distractions. Oh, yeah. Difficult to police, too, because, you know, mm -hmm. you're trying to focus and then... If you're distracted by, you know, the guy on the couch furiously texting away, it's it's a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. You were in the Pacific Northwest. Now you're on the other side of the country. So what led to that migration? Well, working in Portland was, it was good. But what I found was in the last couple of years I was in Portland, I really didn't do any work in Portland. I was constantly flying out to other places to work. And I had started a, a friendship with a studio owner in Oklahoma City who had built a facility there. And he, um, he didn't really have an engineer to help him run it. And so I kept flying down there to do sessions and to mix records because I couldn't get enough studio time in Portland to finish up all the, all the mix work I had. Anyway, eventually... I one day realized that, you know, that year I had been in Oklahoma City for nine months. And I think my wife and kids were getting tired of that. So I bought a house there and we moved down there for a little while. We were only there for a few years. And then I, I had a friend who was a producer, actually a couple of friends who were producers who wanted me in Nashville. And so 
one of them put up the money for my console, and then I just moved to Nashville and opened a studio there. So and I was in Nashville for 13 years before I decided to move down here to Muscle Shoals. The time period between Portland and Oklahoma City, that demand of work, was a lot of that work generated as a result of your work on the Five O'Clock People record? No, not really. Yeah, I, I mean, I just, at the time, there were there were labels who were making records, and I had relationships with a few of them, and so I would go work in other places, you know, and they would say, oh, we need you in Idaho for two months, and then we'd be in Kentucky, or we'd be in California, or up to Vancouver, BC. That was just how the business worked then, because if you were a good recording engineer, you know, you'd be in demand. And this was, gosh, Pro Tools was a thing and all that analog was still kind of a thing. But I don't know, there. I think there, there was just a demand because I was someone who knew how to do both of those things and could walk into a big studio and know how everything worked. And it wasn't like now where you have a lot of people who are recording engineers, but really what they're used to is a laptop and some kind of small interface and they use a lot of soft synths and whatnot. That's kind of what recording engineering is now. But for me, I still go to places and, you know, there might be nine people on the floor and they all want to record a song together. And that's really what, that's been my bread and butter the whole time. Who were your mentors in those early days of schooling you in how to do things and what to do, what not to do? I worked a lot with an engineer named Dean Baskerville. Hmm. He was a local guy in Portland, but uh, and he's still going. I believe he teaches audio, but he lives in Dallas now. And he just was one of those guys who's very straightforward, kind of a meat and potatoes engineer. We do things right. We do it by the book. He's also a really good musician. But he was the guy who kind of, in Portland, really believed in me and would bring me along on his sessions and would show me how to do things. In particular, he helped me a lot when I was learning how to run Pro Tools. But yeah, he's he had good credentials. He worked with a lot with Sheryl Crow. I know he did at least one Everclear record. Hmm. You know, that whole Portland scene when Jeff Trott was out there and Jeff was Cheryl's songwriting partner and guitar player. Now Jeff's in Nashville, but he worked a lot with Jeff Trott at his home studio, which mm-hmm. was an amazing place up in the West Hills. They had a beautiful little API and kind of a neat setup there, beautiful view. But yeah, Dean helped me a lot. I learned a lot also from Tony Lash and used to hang out with Greg Williams from time to time, who's still an engineer producer out there. Does like those Blitz and Trapper records. But back then he was actually, like he was the drummer on most of the stuff for Cheryl Crow's Globe Sessions record. Okay. And he worked with other people too. Like I believe he did it, one of the Dylan records and he was a really good good guy to know who helped me a lot. Yeah, I'm trying to think of who else was around at that time. Oh, I can't forget Larry Crane from Tape Op. <laughs> yeah. He and I were real close from like the time he opened Jackpot with Elliot. I was over there always helping kind of pull the studio together, fix the tape machine, running sessions, doing stuff like that. So Larry and I kind of started off at the same time and we found each other just hanging out at Powell's books, reading 
reading books about recording at Powell's and, and talking about it. And he told me he was starting a magazine and I thought that was cool. So I went down the street to a little place where they only, back in those days, they had stores that sold nothing but zines. And they were all these little handmade photocopied things. And I bought tape op issue number one and took it home and went, I like this guy. This is cool. <laughs> so yeah, Larry and I have, have had a long time friendship and always calling each other, asking questions, telling each other dumb stories and horror stories in the studio. Yeah. So I learned a lot from him. I know Larry and I'm familiar with Tony Lash's name. Sounds like we have a few mutual friends. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about Nashville. Sure. Was that an easy transition to move to Nashville from Oklahoma City? Surprisingly, yes. I, I've been doing sessions all over the place and Nashville is one of those places. So I did already know people. But when I showed up, I just kind of, I don't know, again, this is sort of luck. I happened into the exact right gig at the right moment. There was a producer named Jamie Kenny, who was a friend of mine, and he was one of the people who was encouraging me to move to Nashville. So I, when I moved there, I got a studio that was just down the hall from him, and he was hiring me to mix some projects he was doing. And one of those projects was for an artist named Aaron McCarley, and she put out a record called Love Save the Empty. And it was one of those records that had pretty significant critical acclaim and everybody in the music industry knew about that record. It really made a splash. Unfortunately, I don't think anyone listened to it, but everybody was really courting her at the time. And I, I remember her flying out to meet with Rick Rubin and Tom Wally and all these like people. They were all like all the major labels were courting her, trying to get her to sign. And eventually she did sign a, a good record deal, but that was literally the first project I did when I got into Nashville. And there were quite a few people in Nashville who'd never heard my name who were really wondering how the heck I had stumbled into a gig that good. That was that high profile. And the truth was I'd just become friends with the guy with Jamie who'd been a keyboard player on a session out in Northern Idaho of all places. And we just became friends and he invited me to do that. So Again, it was it was more kind of luck than anything. So you you've come into Nashville and since then you've left. You spent a big chunk of time there. Yep. There's a lot of people that entertain the idea of coming to Nashville. Based on your experience there, what can you offer as the thirty thousand foot view now, now that you've come and gone? What should other audio professionals expect coming to Nashville? I mean, gosh, I don't know. I think Nashville is, you kind of make your own Nashville when you show up. The funny thing for me in Nashville was when I showed up before I ever moved there, my whole career was, I was mainly tracking records and then I would usually mix them. Sometimes I wouldn't, but a, a majority of my days were spent in the studio working with a band and a producer and we were working on the music together. And then because when I showed up to Nashville, the first thing anyone knew about me was that I'd mixed Aaron McCarley's record and everyone liked it. So I didn't set up a mic for the first seven years. Like I never touched a microphone. I was just in my room mixing every day. 
And while that's not a bad gig, I did kind of get sick of just doing one thing all the time. And the way it works now uh, with mixing is you're usually alone when you're doing it. And I got tired of that too. So I will give you this piece of advice. If you go to Nashville, a lot of people make the mistake of, you know, when people say, oh, what do you do? A lot of times they'll say, well, you know, I sing and I write and I play guitar and I play steel and I produce and I do video editing and I got a podcast and they, they give this whole laundry list of all the things they do. And if you do that, you immediately become forgettable. So if what you really want to do is string arranging, say, I'm a string arranger. If what you really want to do is play bass, say, I'm a bass player, you know, or I'm a mix engineer. Just tell one story and be very direct because then you'll stick in people's minds and they'll go like, oh, that guy, I know what he does. And that's, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, you do kind of get pigeonholed a little bit, Mm -hmm. but that's just how that town works. So if you want to be in Nashville, you might be the best drum tech on the planet. But if what you really want to do is play electric guitar, tell them that you play electric guitar and then just go do that. And is that just because there's just so much competition there? There's so much, there's so many people doing so many things. There's a lot of competition, but also I think it just takes a certain amount of focus. Once you get in the door, people will figure out that you can do all those other things too. Mm. And you'll be allowed to, but you have to find your way in. And I I think if you're trying to go out and do a hundred things well, or even 20 things well, you're a lot less likely to get noticed. But if you go do one thing really well and people get to know you for that, then you'll be allowed to do some other things too. If you're coming from LA or you're coming from New York or you're coming from the Pacific Northwest to Nashville, you're used to a particular kind of culture and way of operating. And when you come to Nashville, obviously it's a very different town in a number of ways. So do you see people trying to bring those towns with them and it doesn't work? Again, I think it it depends on what you want to do. If what you really want to do is be a session player, then you're going to be doing two or three, three hour sessions a day. But if you're a producer and you want to work with bands and you've got your own studio, you don't have to play by those rules. Mm. But you you do need to be aware that the people you're hiring oftentimes have to play by those rules. So you kind of have to familiarize yourself with that. You definitely need to know the Nashville number system for charting. Fortunately, that's when I was a, a music theory major, that's what they taught us. Mm. They didn't call it that but that's what they taught us. So I knew that going in, but you definitely need to familiarize yourself with that. Even if you're an engineer, well, especially if you're an engineer, you need to be able to read the chart because people, it's very fast paced and they will just go like, okay, and the bridge put me in at the 5511 and you need to know what that is. So listeners, if you're planning on moving to Nashville, (laughs) do your homework on the Nashville numbers. You need to at least know that much. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. 
So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. You're moving to Muscle Shoals or you're in Muscle Shoals and you're building a studio there. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the the realization that you needed to do that. What what was the driving force there? Well, let me first say that Nashville was really, really good to me. And I'm still in Nashville all the time working. I'm only two hours away, so it's really easy for me to get up early on a on a Monday morning and drive up to Nashville and get my job done. So oftentimes I'm up there, but I moved down here. Maybe we should start with what is Muscle Shoals? A lot of people don't know. I guess you're right. I'm taking that for granted. You have your classic music towns in America. You know, everybody knows about New York and LA and Memphis. They know that a lot of music happened in Detroit and, you know, there's a good music scene in Atlanta. And then, you know, obviously you have Austin, you know, is a famous music town for live music. But what a lot of people don't realize is that there is a tiny little town in Alabama, north northwest Alabama, called Muscle Shoals, that actually claims to be the hit recording capital of the world, which sounds kind of ridiculous until you start to, to do your research and you realize, oh my gosh, it really it kind of is the hit recording capital of the world. And even though there's not a lot of people in this region – there's only about 80,000 people that live in the area. You've got huge studios that have been doing this since the 60s. Like everyone from Aretha Franklin to Cher to Bob Dylan, the group Alabama. You've got Shenandoah. You've got, I mean, just the the list goes on and on and on right up to today, you know, John Paul White lives here and he has his studio and and record label and there are a number of others too. This is still kind of a, well, it's definitely a music business town. It's definitely a recording town and it's beautiful right on the Tennessee River, which is gorgeous. Surprisingly, the food scene is really good here. Hmm. Even though the town area is small, there's a lot of interesting things going on locally and culturally. It's a good place to to be for that. We have several music festivals here every year. Uh, there's WC Handy Festival. You've got Jason Isbell is from here. Hmm. And so he has Shoals Fest. And you've got Billy Reed, the fashion designer, has Shindig Festival, which is kind of a big 
rock and roll R&B festival and lots of, you know, Americana and country in that too. And uh, you have the Muscle Shoals Songwriter Festival and there's even more. There's a lot going on musically here still. And, and in fact, today, the movie Respect is coming out in theaters. That's right. Which is about Aretha Franklin. And she really got her her start here in Muscle Shoals. Like she had been an artist before that, but hadn't had any hits. But it wasn't until she came down to Muscle Shoals and she met the Swampers. That was what we call the session musicians from that era. They were called the Swampers, which can be heard in the Leonard Skinner song, Sweet Home Alabama. Right. They're mentioned there. Muscle Shoals has the Swampers. Yeah, Leonard Skinner's from here. Southern Rock was born here. The Almond Brothers are from here. Anyway, yeah, so that's Muscle Shoals. And it, you should go look it up. There's actually a documentary called Muscle Shoals. And it, it's about the music history here. And the great news is, is that, yes, it's still all here. And there are people working and making their living doing music professionally in this kind of wonderful little place that is an hour away from a freeway. So my question about that is, is like Nashville, the cost of living around the country is is gone up tremendously. I mean, my audience knows I'm in the Bay Area. It's crazy mm-hmm. expensive here. <laughs> so people are making their way to smaller towns or, or towns with a, a better cost of living. And I'm sure Muscle Shoals for some musicians and audio professionals is kind of on their list of potentials. So It should be. Well, and I'm wondering how, like, because I'm a person who likes to try to put all the pieces together in a row to try to figure out, well, okay, so if you move there and let's say you're an audio professional and you want to produce or engineer, getting your foot in the door when you're a new, new stranger in town, what would you say to uh, the audience for that? You know, I, I would say that right now the, the music community here is really excited about all the people that are moving here right now. They're very excited that it seems like we're having a bit of a renaissance. And I have had several friends. I, I've only been here eight months. And I've had several friends move here since I got here. And many more are coming down all the time. I'm probably hosting one or two visitors a week who are just coming to check out the area. And I get messages and phone calls from people, especially people from Nashville, constantly about it. People are very curious about what's happening here. So I, I'm excited about it. Cost of living wise, it's it's that's one of the best things about it, honestly. I couldn't afford to buy a shack in Nashville for what I paid for my house. And I actually had the opportunity to open a recording studio of my own and do it the way I want to. And really, I won't, won't go into the numbers, but if you just look up Muscle Shoals, like on Zillow, mm-hmm. there's actually four towns that make up this area. But Muscle Shoals is just one of them. I live in Florence, Alabama. My studio is in Sheffield. And there's uh, another town called Tuscumbia. And then there are other towns around here too. Killen is really close by and St. Florin. I think that's how they say it. It looks like St. Florian. But these are all kind of in the Shoals area. Okay. And if you just go look it up, you will be shocked and amazed at what a really nice house sells for here. And, you know, there's commercial property too. Like I, you know, like I said, I bought a studio 
with Jason and we got a guest house too. I mean, cause that stuff was on sale. Yeah. So we wanted a place for people to come and stay. Yeah. And if you're in Nashville and you want to come check it out for the day, a flight is only 50 bucks. Oh, wow. So boutique air. <laughs> so what's the vision for the studio? What, what do you imagine it to be for you? Well, uh, my studio, I'm going for more of the mainly, I'm still mainly mixing. So I'm just getting the mix room I want. I don't want it to be huge, but I don't want it to be tiny like my last place was. I still like to mix analog, so I want my my console in there and all my outboard gear. And then uh, it's fairly open floor plan. I've got two booths and a kitchen and two bathrooms. And that's that's it. Just kind of a nice little shoebox building where it all fits. And teaming up with uh, your manager, Jason, is that from just splitting up the the artistic and the business sides of the two of you to make sure that this is a success? Well, I think mainly Jason, just when he came down here, he saw the potential mm-hmm. for the area and what's going on. And he's a New York, New Jersey guy, and he couldn't believe the energy and the what was happening down here. So I think he got excited about it like a lot of people are and just wanted to be a part of it. Mm. That's the same reason I came down. I, I've been coming down here for about four years to work on sessions with, you know, songwriters and friends from Nashville. And for a while before COVID, we were trying to make it a monthly thing where we would come down and take over a studio for a weekend and just have a blast and try and knock out half a dozen songs in a weekend. And that's really how I kind of got acquainted with the place. I did come down here in 2019. I did a record with the group Hanson. They're from Tulsa. But they just wanted to change a pace, and they knew about Muscle Shoals and the music history here, and they, they wanted to try that out and see what it was like here. So we worked at Fame for a couple weeks. And actually, that record is just coming out now. They're, I think they're, they're going to release the whole thing later, but they're kind of doing like one song at a time right now. So mm. several songs are, are out from that album. Yeah, I, I just, when I was here, I fell in love with it. So I, I was excited about the place and... I don't know. Everybody I bring down just seems to have the same reaction. They see what's actually happening here, and then they immediately start going, well, is there a place for me? Yeah. And obviously, it's not for everyone. Right. Yeah. But I believe it was right for me, and I'm pretty excited about it. I still get to do all the things I was doing in Nashville, but I pay less than half for my cost of living. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting how the cost of living in a town seems to directly translate to a music scene, which, of course, directly translates to a recording scene. Yeah. And, I mean, I came to the to San Francisco in 1988, and mm-hmm. things were just on fire, and it was great. Now, when I go there, clubs have closed, studios have closed, musicians mm-hmm. have moved. It's just not the same. So I know that Muscle Shoals has been around for a very long time, but still with that cost of living, even in today's environment, I'm sure you could directly attribute some of that as part of the reason why it continues to thrive. Yeah. I think that the reason why Muscle Shoals is what it is is because the music is in the culture. Mm. Everyone I meet plays, sings, writes, you know, they say it's in the water. There's something in the water and it's really kind of, true that everyone you meet here is involved in music somehow. Maybe not professionally, but it's just part of who they are. 
Mm. And that really does translate into you have a lot of great writers and, and players here. And I think that's really kind of the secret of the place. Maybe it used to be like, well, we don't know what else to do. There's not much going on around here. So they were doing music. But now it's just such a part of everyday life for most of the people here that it just, I don't know, it, it seems like it seems like wherever you go, you really can't escape it here. You're always surrounded by music. Just touching a little bit on work-life balance, you mentioned wife and kids moving to Oklahoma City, moving to Nashville, now moving to Muscle Shoals. For some people, it's a challenge to keep the business part of your life happy and the family part of your life happy. Has that been a struggle for you at all, or do you have kind of a, a method down? Oh, there's no method. I think, again, it, it just kind of comes down to, like, you keep working at it, and as long as you keep working at it and the person you're with keeps working at it, you figure it out. Yeah, it's not easy. But then again, you know, I've managed to make it work. So. Yeah. So when you're not in the studio working and you're out in the world, you know, you mentioned Hanson and bringing them down to check things out. Beyond your manager, Jason, how would you say that networking plays a part in your your world of getting more clients, meeting new people, getting roped into doing new records with people? What's that like? What's What's that... Is it happen naturally? Is it, do you think it through and think, oh, I'd really like to work with these guys. Let's reach out to them. I honestly don't think about it. Okay. It, it happens very organically. The people that I'm fortunate enough to know and be around, they just tend to be making good music with lots of people. So I get to meet new people all the time and get to talk with old friends and find out what they're doing and I don't have to advertise. I don't have to do any of that stuff. Usually, usually I've got more to do than I, I really have time for. So I just kind of keep doing what I'm doing and helping people out and just do a good job and yeah. be nice. <laughs> That's really what it comes down to. Yeah. It's funny how if you concentrate on those, those aspects, everything yeah. else gets worked out. Yep. Would you say that it took a while to get up to a point where you were surviving in those early days of Portland and Oklahoma City, or did it just take off from the beginning? And No, I mean, I think we're always in survival mode a bit. I mean, less so now than, than it was 10 years ago. It's not like it was in the old days where people had $400,000 record budgets and stuff like that. Those days are, are gone you know, and I, I'm fortunate enough that I got to spend a few years getting to work in that world, and that occasionally I get invited back to go work on on some records that are like that. But you know, for the most part, I try and say yes as much as possible to people, as long as they're nice and the music is good. I try and say yes because even if they don't have a lot of money, I mean, shoot, I don't have a lot of money. I can't afford to pay someone to do this kind of work, so. I try and keep that in mind and help out as many people as I can. And that's really kind of the the main thing, just kind of keeping that perspective. I don't know a lot of people who are getting rich by being a recording engineer. <laughs> there are a few, but not a lot. Well, once all the business is kind of sorted out with an artist and you're in the studio, whether you're mi mixing or tracking or producing, 
what is your overall goal? I know it changes with each artist, but overall, mm -hmm. what are you trying to accomplish? Mainly try and make it sound as close as you can to what the record should sound like so that musicians know what to play. That's really all what I try and do. Get everything sounding really good for everyone so that they don't have to worry about it. They can just think about what their part should be. And I don't understand people who try and put off decisions for later and are constantly having to put things off. I really want when people put on the headphones and sit down to play, I want it to feel as complete as possible. I don't know how you'd make a good decision without that picture. You, you have to know what the record's going to sound like. Otherwise, how do you know what to play? Yeah. Well, I guess it's like cooking. And even when you're reading a recipe, it'll say, okay, chop this, grate this, blend that together, cook mm -hmm. that over there. And then at some point you bring those ingredients together. I think music and recording is, is, is a lot of the same. If, if you do that, combine and those ingredients early on, you know what you're going to get. Yep, exactly. Is there anything in particular that we haven't touched on that you'd like to talk about that's important to Man. you? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think these days, especially when I'm mixing, I mean, everyone who mixes for a living complains about the quality of the tracks that they get. And so I don't want to go too far down that road. But I think that there's just some essential, like, I, I really wish people would learn to keep it simple. And that the way to make your recording sound big is not to throw everything at it. If you can keep it like really, really simple and still manage to do something that sounds good and that's emotionally compelling, you're going to be way better off. I have to say that I, after years of, of doing this, it's frustrating to open a session and realize that now I have to cram 200 tracks into the next three minutes. I mean, I can do it. Mm -hmm. And it'll sound good, but I don't know that you need to. I'm always wondering why it took 14 layers of rhythm guitars. Yeah. When maybe we could have just done two and I could have made those sound really big. It doesn't make any sense to me. I struggle with it all the time. When I, when I open a session, I usually just want to throw away about half the tracks because they don't, they don't mean anything. Yeah. I come across this a fair amount where I open up tracks and I equate it to somebody who has a living room and decided that they needed four different couches in that living room as opposed to one couch and maybe a couple chairs. Yeah. And I'm struggling to put all the couches in the right place so that it can all work out. And usually I call the artist and say, can I get rid of this couch or this couch? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I, I normally don't even go there because they're just gonna they're gonna insist on having the whole furniture store rather than just one good living room set. <laughs> Thank you. You you've completely sealed my analogy there. Yeah, uh, you know, it's funny. I think that obviously, you know, you have to have someone who knows who has who has a good song. Mm -hmm. And if you have someone with a good song and they can perform it well, you're almost there. But I think that there's this other weird element to really good production and that it's almost boring. Almost. Like, it doesn't completely satisfy you. It's usually something in the hook or just in the rhythm track or whatever that kind of gives it a little bit of a motor and keeps it going. But if you're 
going full blast with everything all the time, it just becomes like white noise. And there was a time for a few years where I was getting called a lot to mix songs for like CCM radio, Christian radio. And it seems like it's sort of just one of the production values in that style of music to just throw everything at a track. And I, I've told the story before, but I remember one one day a producer gave me a session to mix and the intro had 51 different layers of synth pads. And where do you even go with that? Like yeah. 51 layers of synth pads just for the intro. How does that make any sense? How do you grow from that? And I mean, you could have gotten by with two, but there were 51. And he was very particular about the relationship with all of them. And good for him for having that ability to sort all that out. But in the end, it still just sounded like a big old synthy mess to me. Yeah. And I just don't know that, I mean, if, if 51, then why not, why don't we just do 61 or why don't we do 16 or, <laughs> I mean, what, why, you know, and, and that's on top of like the 50 some layers of background vocal tracks on top of a full orchestra and on top of probably 14 to 18 electric guitar tracks and then numerous acoustic guitar tracks the whole session wouldn't open and I, I would have to go back and open up like just the strings and submix the strings and then bring back that stereo mix. And in the end, it, it just, to me, none of it mattered in the end. It just sounded like it was kind of this musical wallpaper. I just, I don't know. I've found that I really can't do that anymore. Like when I've been called to work on, that style of music, I just I pretty much say no now because it's like, I just don't want to deal with it. Yeah. I'd much rather work on something that has a little bit of character. Maybe the production value isn't quite as high, but at least, you know, if there's someone who has a song and a guitar and something to say, and it's simple, that resonates more with me. And it always has. I've never really loved that super shiny, polished thing. I've always preferred something that was a little simpler, mainly because I feel like it's, it, it sounds bigger. Yeah. It sounds fuller. And I don't know how to fully how to express it other than just good song, good performance, and leave it a little boring. Yeah. For lack of a better way of saying it. And do you think that with people, not just because of COVID, but in general, when they self-produce, there is a tendency to, oh, I got to get this person I that did me a favor over here. I want to bring them in on the record. And mm -hmm. their decision-making about why they choose certain instruments to go in a recording is not always driven by the song itself. Sometimes it's driven by, oh, you know, I really like this person and, and just want to get them in for any reason, whether yeah, it makes sense or not. It seems to me like one of the big motivators for a lot of people who are trying to produce their own music is fear. And if, if your art is coming from a place of fear, you're just not making great art. It's okay if it scares you. It probably should scare you, but that you have to have the courage to move forward with that. But if you're trying to like constantly cover up who you are, what you are with more tracks, 
or by bringing in more and more people, you're probably not doing it right. Agreed. Yeah. Wow. We're all very different in in the world of audio, but boy, it seems like we're dealing with a lot of the same stuff. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Craig, it's been great to have you on. I know that I was going to ask you, where can people find out more about you? But I can already tell them that if you go to craigalvin.com, you can read about Craig and get in contact. And I will include a link in the show notes for, for people to check that out. And... I'm not seeing any social media links. Do you participate much yep. in Instagram or Facebook? You can find me, Craig Alvin, at Facebook, Craig Alvin on Instagram. Oh, you can also look up Noble Steed Music on Instagram, and you'll find the studio build. We're covering all of that there if you want oh, to go Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so wh- when is the expected date of the studio to be uh, ready to go? Well, you know how that is. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> when you're building a studio, you... We said we wanted to open in September, and I'm hopeful. We'll see. Well, I wish you the best of luck. It, it sounds like you're choosing a great location with a lot of great talent, and I can only see great things coming from that combination. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, Craig. Well, thank you so much, and you take care. All right, you too. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Craig Alvin here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Remember, if you like the show, head on over to Apple Music. And if you could, leave us a five-star review, maybe a few written words to say some kind things. Of course, it always helps out the show, and we would really appreciate that. So that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes, of course, Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.